morning. My name is Sharon Swift. I'm the pastor of Connections and Equipping here at New Life on the Community Life team. And I am so grateful to be able to, to close out our series on Jonah this week. We have been journeying through the book of Jonah uh, over six weeks. And even though it's only four chapters, this book is rich with content. There's so much to explore there. And I hope that this is your first sermon that you'll jump back and catch up on these on this series. It's really been phenomenal, uh, including those of you that have been involved in the small groups. They are great. I have had so much fun in my small group. I hope this series has been a blessing to you as well. Um, and so with that, I want to start with our text this morning. We are going to be in Jonah chapter 4. And we're finishing out the chapter starting at verse 5 and going through verse 11. And so if you would um, read along with me. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Um, let me pray for us. Lord, I ask that you be with us this morning as we explore this chapter, Lord, of Jonah. I ask that you guide us, that you open our ears to hear and our eyes to see that you help us to understand what it is that you have for us this morning in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to give you a bit of a recap in case this is your first week joining us in this series. And if you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, again, I encourage you to catch up on those sermons. They're phenomenal. But um, I want to make sure you're with us and you remember all the things that have happened so far. So first thing... The word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 1. Uh, Jonah is called to go to Nineveh and to preach to that city because uh, they are coming under the judgment of God. The, the Ninevites, which is uh, in Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria, is a very violent and cruel kingdom. They are known for being destructive to the kingdoms around them, conquering and doing so with, with really deep cruelty. These are not kind and safe people. And so, and they're also the enemies of Israel. Israel is also threatened by the kingdom of Assyria. And so Jonah hears this call and says, 
go in the opposite direction. And so Jonah takes off to flee from the presence of the Lord as if that was something that any of us could do. Um, But he goes in the opposite direction towards Tarshish and he is hoping to completely avoid this call. But instead, the Lord sends a storm that stirs up everything. The sailors are panicking. They are sure they're going to die. And eventually, they pull out of Jonah the information they need that this storm is because Uh, God is pursuing him. And so um, Jonah says, throw me in the ocean, this will be done. And so they throw him in the ocean after much, uh, you know, kind of hand-wringing. They throw him into the ocean um, and they begin to worship God. Jonah, on the other hand, instead of drowning in the ocean, God sends a fish that swallows him up. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, kind of caught between life and death, not quite... um, not quite living, not quite dying. And eventually, uh, he does pray there. The prayer is a little, uh, a little unrelated to the circumstances, but uh, he does get eventually spit out. Maybe the fish got sick of him, I don't know. But he gets spit out. The Lord uh, commands the fish to spit him out on dry land, and the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah. In chapter 3, Jonah is now going to obey this command from the Lord. But begrudgingly. He's going to walk all the way to Nineveh as he was supposed to from the beginning, but he gives a one-sentence sermon. I mean, really, the minimum that he needs to put out there, he puts out there. But guess what? It's a life-changing sermon for the Ninevites. They repent. They uh, start to wear sackcloth and ashes. Even the king relents and says, oh my goodness, let's, let's fast, let's pray. Even the animals will fast and pray. And let, and who knows, maybe God will have mercy. And guess what? God has mercy. He sees the sincerity of their repentance and he relents. He doesn't bring judgment on Nineveh. And so we come into last week's sermon and Jonah is angry. I mean, he is really, really angry. And he's so angry. And Pastor Rich last week explores some of that anger. But he's telling God, this is the most talking he's finally doing to God. And he tells God, I knew it. I knew you would do this. I knew you would show mercy. God is showing mercy to some of the most destructive and violent people on the face of the earth at that time. And Jonah would rather die than live seeing God show mercy to people that seem so undeserving of it. And so he says over and over, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than to live. And so the first thing I want us to notice as we look at today's passage is that God is not satisfied with just completing the task. You know, if God was happy with just getting the word to Nineveh, the book would have ended at chapter 3. You know, that task got accomplished by the end of chapter 3. But there's an entire chapter still left of Jonah, right? Because God is doing some of his best work in chapter four. God is coming after Jonah. See, God's not done with just reaching the Ninevites. He was determined to pursue the Assyrians. He was. He was determined to get his word to them, and God did that. But God is not done. In fact, obedience, Jonah's obedience is not enough to satisfy God. God wants Jonah's heart. Not, he's not going to end the story without trying to get to Jonah. 
And in many ways, Jonah seems like the worst possible choice for this job, right? I mean, he clearly has no interest in being helped to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to do this job well. I mean, he doesn't really do a very good job of it. He would rather risk drowning in the sea than go to Nineveh. But God preserved Jonah and sent him anyway. Why? Because God is after Jonah's heart. Obedience is not enough for God. God doesn't want to leave Jonah miserable. He wants to help Jonah change and move to a space where he can appreciate all these miraculous things that have happened, all these events and wonders that have unfolded before Jonah's eyes. The God of the universe who's controlling the sailors, the weather, the fish, the Ninevites, their animals, their king, and now the plant and the worms. This God wants to have this conversation with Jonah. And he gives a whole chapter to it. And he is pouring out his heart here. God is telling him that the love he has for the Ninevites and how he sees the Assyrians as humans created in his image. God wants to see Jonah see the Ninevites as something more than just enemies. He wants to use this plant to draw something out of Jonah, to get his point across to Jonah that his, his attachments, his ideas of what's fair are not even good ideas. They don't make sense. He's attached to something that existed for just a short time and only because it was convenient for him. It saved him some discomfort. And so he's attached to this plant now, but God wants to shift something within Jonah to move beyond just his comfort and not just his bare obedience. God is trying to reason with Jonah and give him gentle answers to his questions because he's after his heart. He's after transformation of Jonah's heart. Do you believe that God is after your heart? That God is after your heart? That God is interested in you more for more than just your capacity to do things for him? What we do for God does matter, but... Sometimes we think it matters too much. We forget that God is after our heart and transforming our hearts. You know, there's so many places in this world where we're measured. Our worth is evaluated constantly by the world around us. When we're at work, there are deliverables and measured outcomes that we have to report back about, right? We want to see our trending numbers. You know, we want to see them trending upward and to the right, right? We have to be able to keep justifying our value to our companies to show that we're not easily replaced. And we have these measures outside of the workplace too. They're just a little more subtle. Um, we get, get uh, evaluated about how we are in our homes, right? Is our home nice enough? Are we keeping it clean and tidy? Is all the laundry done and folded and put away? Can we host? Do we bake things from scratch? Do we eat healthy? Are we hosting like Martha Stewart would? We have measurements as a student, right? If you're a student, you're constantly being evaluated. Are your grades high enough? Are you doing enough to differentiate yourself from the other students? Even if you have the top grades, is that enough? How will you shine among all the other students when you try to apply to college or grad school or try to get that interview at your first job? How do you set yourself apart? You're constantly being evaluated. It's around us. And the problem is sometimes we bring that into our life of faith. We think that our value is determined by our output 
we start to look around and think, am I significant? Do I matter to God's kingdom? Is what I'm doing even helping anything? Am I, I'm not doing as much as that person. Does it, does it mean that I'm not doing enough and that God overlooks me? And I want to assure you today that God is after your heart too. That you have worth and value that cannot be measured or contained by some metric or number. That your worth is based in the fact that you are God's beloved, that you were made in his image, that you have inherent value, and you have so much value that God is after your heart too, that God wants to transform you, that God wants to reach your heart. It's easy to think that this book is only about God's mission to the Ninevites, But we know from this whole chapter that God's mission is not just about that outward reach. God's mission is to us too. That we are not insignificant part of God's big story. And so you matter to God and he wants your heart too. Amen? Amen. But I also want to move us towards um, something else that's happening in this chapter about Jonah's posture It's a little subtle. The imagery doesn't always pop right out at us because this was written in a very different time in the world. Um, We get to question four, right? Last week we ended on, uh, I'm sorry, not question four. We ended on verse four last week where God is asking Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And rather than answer that question, Jonah walks out. He actually walks outside of the city and he goes and he makes himself a shelter. Now that word booth that's in uh, verse 5, um, actually it's the same word as like that's used for tabernacle. It's like a tent structure. The tabernacle was the original uh, temporary home for the presence of the Lord before they built the temple. So it's just, you know, it's like a tent structure that someone can put up. It is meant to be a temporary sort of thing. It's, it's able to be dis- disassembled and moved again. And so Jonah sets this up. And then he parks himself under it, and he's sitting and he's watching the city. And so try to picture him there. He's under this shelter, sitting, watching the city, and he's going to overlook it. Now, sitting in the ancient world is significant because we often think of um, standing, right, as powerful. We think of, you know, standing to give a speech or superheroes sort of stand and strike a pose, right? But actually sitting is a sign of authority, that people take a seat of authority. In the ancient world, it'd be kings and queens, right? Would sit on their throne and they would rule and reign from their throne. They would, um, that's their seat of authority from which they uh, give their declarations. Um, we see it today, but it's not as obvious to us. We see it, for example, in our president. The president, when he receives a bill, sits in the Oval Office at his desk, his chosen desk. Right now it's the resolute desk, I think. Um, But he signs the bill into law. When he sits at that desk, he's taking his authority as president to make a bill into a law. And if he doesn't do that, the bill sits there and it dies, right? It no longer becomes something that he can pass into law. But that's because he's sitting at that desk and when he does that, he's taking a certain kind of authority that's been given to him. We even hear about it when we talk about sitting president, right? All the presidents that are still alive are still called president so-and-so. But we distinguish the president that's still in power right now as the sitting president, right? Because they're in the seat of authority. Sitting uh, evokes that image of present um, and active authority. We probably see this the most clearly in a courtroom. 
When a judge walks in, everyone rises. And then when the judge sits, everyone sits. Why? Because when the judge is at the bench, they are taking their seat of authority. When the judge is at the bench, now what the judge says is not just the judge's opinion on something. It becomes a matter of fact. The judge is now saying it's not, it's not their opinion. It's actually the opinion of the court. They are taking their authority when they come to the bench and sit down. And what they rule becomes a matter of fact. It gets recorded. And so we see this, this idea of authority from sitting in the modern world. It's a little more subtle, but it would have been very obvious in the ancient world. It's sitting, him coming and building himself a little structure and sitting in it apart from the city means he's showing, he's taking on some kind of authority over the city. He's posturing himself that way. Jo, uh, Jonah has effectively put himself in the judgment seat. He has effectively put himself in the judgment seat. He's going to sit and judge Nineveh. He's going to sit and watch. And he's not hoping for something good. He's made that very clear from the outset. Um, but he's doing more than judging Nineveh. He's judging God, too. Remember, he's already made a verdict on God. If we remember verse 1 and 2, in verse 1, he basically, it says that Jonah, this all seemed wrong to Jonah. But then we get to verse 2, and he's very clear. He said, that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew you were a gracious, and, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing he is saying God is being too gracious, too loving, too merciful here. Jonah has a very strong opinion about what God should have done. And even though he's surrounded by miracle after miracle, wonder after wonder is unfolding before him because of his strong feelings about the Ninevites, Jonah can't be anything more than fair. He can't. He is so angry. He's blinded to what God is doing because of his opinions and his prejudice. And so it's easy for us to see as readers that Jonah is plainly wrong, right? I mean, he is the prophet and God is God, right? And so he's not going to win this argument. Um, in the churches that Andrew and I sort of uh, were discipled in early in our journey, um, they used to have a saying, the church mothers used to stay, say, your arms are too short to box with God. <laughs> meaning you are not going to win this, you know? Like you are at a severe disadvantage if you're going to try to take, take something up with God in that way, take a contrary position to God. But we do this all the time. We really do. How many times do we believe we know better? I know how this should work. I know the best way to do this. If only God would do this, we could fix this whole thing. It could be done. But we don't see just how many times we are wrong about that. I've shared this story once before, but it just fits so perfectly here. I had to share it again. Um, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, Tilly, um, I gained weight everywhere. You know, I expanded in every direction. But when I had um, Abigail, um, I actually carried completely differently. I kind of was all forward with her. Um, and, you know, they say if you carry differently, it's a different gender. That was not the case for me. Um, and, you know, it just, 
I couldn't get used to my radius, okay? I had a very big radius suddenly um, from being a very small person. And so I remember I once walked into my boss's office and I was turning to leave and my stomach swiped everything off his desk. <laughs> and I couldn't even help him pick it up because I couldn't, I just couldn't do that. Uh, so um, this is how, how awkward I was at that point. So at one point, Andrew and I go to the grocery store. I like to push the cart. He was a gentleman. He obviously offered to push the cart, but I wanted to push the cart for some reason. So we're walking like this. You know, I'm walking with the cart out here because that's as close to my body as I can bring the cart at this point. And I'm waddling because I'm just huge. And um, behind me, there's a woman who's trying to get through. Now, there were only two lanes in this particular grocery store. It has this, like, long entrance. And so there's one line going in and one line coming out of the grocery store. And I can tell there's a woman behind me getting very agitated because I look like a very young person who's just walking incredibly slow. From the back, she couldn't tell I was pregnant at all. Um, and so she's getting more and more agitated. I can feel it, you know, like, she's making sure I know. Um, and so there's a break in the movement on this side, and so she kind of pulls her card out to pass me. And um, as she does, of course, she wants to make sure she gives me, you know, a look. So, she, so I know, in case I didn't hear all the sounds she was making before. Um, and so she turns, and she sees me, and then she sees my stomach. And she is just shocked. You know, literally, she just freezes for a minute, and her mouth is open, and then she finally just says, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Like, she knows that she made it such a point to be so annoyed with me. But once she could see why I was moving so slowly, she felt so convicted. She had, she had judged the entire situation wrong. And you know what? I can get it. I mean, I've been that way too. We don't have perspective as humans. We don't do well when we make our own judgments and proclamations. We can't even walk in the supermarket and do that well. <laughs> we can't handle that much judgment without screwing it up. You know, it's like if Jonah had his way, he would have kept that plant alive and let 120,000 people in Nineveh perish. That's what he would do. We are terrible judges. He would have let that happen. And you know, God says to Jonah, you did nothing to create that plant. What's the subtext? I created those people. They're made in my image. I'm not willing to give up on them just like that. That's what God is saying about Nineveh. But Jonah has none of that perspective, and we lack it too. You know, we think we're that Jonah's crazy to fixate on this plant and be so, so angry he's willing to die. But we as a nation just spent a week analyzing a slap. <laughs> Will Smith slaps Chris Rock at the Oscars, and we have seen article and article about it, tweet and think piece upon think piece about it. We have had opinions, and then we've had other people give opinions, and then there were opinions about the opinions, and then there were people critiquing the people who had the opinions because they had no right to judge. Look at what they've done. There was piling on piling on piling, and I'm guilty too. I read several of those think pieces trying to figure out what is happening. I also got caught up, and guess what got pushed out of the headlines is human beings that are dying across this world. There's war in Ukraine, and there are people dying in Yemen. I mean, there are so many stories of human suffering, but we love to judge. We love to offer our opinions. 
We love to believe that we're right. But here's the thing, we are not built for judgment that way. We just are not. And what happens to us is what's happening to Jonah. It makes us miserable. It makes us frustrated. We end up like Jonah. Because look, here's the thing. God is doing a new thing here. And Jonah is missing it. God is doing something incredible, a new thing, and Jonah is missing it because he is too busy judging. Let's be clear now. God has always been interested in every human being he's created. From the beginning of Genesis, that's true. What's new is not God's interest in the enemies of Israel. He has always been interested in people. He has always been interested in reaching the world. But what is new is that the center of God's work is no longer going to be contained mainly within Israel. Instead, God is shifting the center of his work outside of the borders of Israel. And now he is reaching out in new ways through his people by sending someone like Jonah, a prophet, to a nation that is not Israel. But Jonah can't see this beyond his own prejudices and his own assumptions about how God works in the world. God is trying to get Jonah to see himself more clearly in this chapter. He wants a deeper repentance from Jonah, one that goes beyond just simple obedience. God wants us to to move beyond anger and frustration into a deeper repentance. God is looking for us to also let go of some of our assumptions about how God will work in the world. God has only one agenda in this entire book. It's to transform us, to transform humanity, to move us from a place of violence and anger and frustration to a place of grace and mercy and love, to a place of restoration of purpose and relationship, both things, to change us to know that there's a better way to live than what we're doing right now that is leading to all this frustration and anger. There's a better way than doing this our own way. And some of you are feeling this. You're feeling that need to let go of anger and frustration right now because you know it's destroying you from the inside out just like it's doing to Jonah. You know that it's deteriorating you. Some of you know you've been in the judgment seat. You've put yourself there and it's time to get up. And the way we get up is through confession and repentance. See, this is why we engage in the rhythm of Lent. This is why we need this annual reminder that we are not in the judgment seat and our way is not the best way. We need that annual reminder that Jesus' way is a way of humility, it's a way of sacrifice, it's a way of love. And without that rhythm, we will find ourselves caught in the judgment seat time and time again. If Jonah teaches us anything, it's that actually the people of God can be the most resistant to repentance, more resistant than the people outside of the community of faith because we think we have God on our side. Remember, we started this book with Jonah being the one person we knew was from a community of faith. He was the one person, the one person in this story that we knew knew God. And everywhere we go, the, the animals, the weather, the people are all recognizing God and they're repenting. 
but not Jonah. At the end, we don't even know where Jonah stands. We don't know Jonah's reply. We're left wondering, is Jonah in a good place? We're like that. As the church, we are the people of faith. We don't want to get to our chapter four and have people wonder, do we see God at work or are we missing it? We need that rhythm of Lent. We need that rhythm of repentance and confession to keep us out of that judgment seat and to keep us in the way of Jesus. So we don't know what happens to Jonah in the end, do we? We don't actually know what Jonah does after God's last questions to him. We don't know what Jonah replies. And that's a very Eastern thing. This kind of reminds us that this is not a Western uh, book. The Old Testament was not written by, for a Western audience. This is very much kind of a, an Eastern ending to a book, leaving us hanging. And the reason is because an ending like this points the question to us. See, God is not worried about telling us the end of Jonah's life. God is worried about the reader and asking us a question. Reader, what will you do now? In light of Jonah's life, in light of the question God is asking Jonah, God wants to know, what will you do? Because scripture is not primarily a book of answers. Of course, there are answers there. There are answers to tell us how to live. But There's more than that there. It's also designed to ask questions of us. See, this is the danger in reading scripture and the power of it. You can read scripture, but scripture will also read you. It will ask you questions and it will make you wrestle with what it means to live faithfully as a people of God here on this side of eternity. And so... I want to ask that question of you as you think about Jonah. What will you do in light of what you have heard and read about Jonah? Will you give in to anger and frustration and let it trap you? Will you stay in the judgment seat? Or will you trust God's goodness, his wisdom, his love for you, and hold on to that rhythm of confession and repentance? and the way of Jesus, which is humility, sacrifice, and love. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you have kept it for us. And God, I thank you that you care about our hearts, God. I pray that you would do a deep work in us today, Lord. Help us to embrace your rhythms and help us to give up our our posture in the judgment seat, God. Help us to embrace these last two weeks of Lent. We believe that you have good things for us there, God. Change us, transform us. Do what only you can do in us, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we prepare to take communion. And what a wonderful way to transition to receiving the gifts of God through bread and the cup. What will you do? That's the question, isn't it? What will I do? 
Jonah's story is our story. How will we respond? I love what Sharon said. There was a line she said that just reminds us of the Lord's table and what's happening here where God is trying to get Jonah to know, I'm not willing to give up on these people. I'm not willing to give up on these people. And Jonah, I'm not willing to give up on you. And this is God's word to us. And when we come to the table, we are reminded of the lengths that Jesus Christ went to demonstrate and prove that point. I'm not willing to give up on you. I'm not willing to give up on the world. In fact, I will die for it. And so here we see Jesus Christ as the anti-Jonah. Jonah runs away from the will of God. Jesus runs to the will of God. Jonah wants to see his enemies perish. Jesus perishes for his enemies. And in so doing, offers us eternal life and invites us to live in the way of his kingdom where are you like Jonah that's the question for us and where do you need to repent let me invite you to close your eyes for a moment all of us to some degree find ourselves in the story of Jonah and this invitation especially in this Lenten season is to repent to turn towards the living God I want to give you a moment just for your own confession and repentance. Where is the Lord identifying points in your own soul that you need forgiveness, that you need confession, that you need to repent? And then we'll pray a prayer of confession together. Let let me give you a few moments just to pause in the presence of God. Let's pray this prayer of confession on the screen together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, and deed, in what we have done, in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life To the glory of your name, amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the people of God, redeemed by the broken body of Jesus Christ, let's all receive together.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As the people of God forgiven by the poured out blood of Jesus Christ, let's all receive together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your body and your blood, the ways that you have demonstrated that you will not give up on your people. In fact, you will die for us. Die for the sake of our own righteousness in you, that we may live in communion with you and may invite the world to do the same. We sing to you now as a response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea of great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lived and pleased for me. Glory. 
Amen. Amen. Let's have our prayer team come to my right as we close this message. Really, the invitation, close the service, really this invitation uh, is in the form of a question. Will we be the one to sit or we will, will we allow Christ to be the one to sit? You know, Sharon mentioned the various ways that sitting is a sign of authority and the same applied to Jesus Christ. Where Christ, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says he went up to the mountain and then he sat down to teach his disciples, showing himself to be the one who has true authority. And not only there, after Christ is risen from the dead, he ascends to the Father and sits at the right hand of God, letting the world know he's in charge. He's the one who has authority. And time and time again, we sit in Christ's seat. A couple of weeks ago, my son was in my office and I walked into my office and he was sitting in my seat. And I said, this is my chair, son. Get off my chair, you know. And sometimes I wonder if God says to us, you're sitting in my seat. That's my seat. I'm the one who judges in righteousness. I'm the one who judges in love and judges in compassion. God's judgments is what the world longs for, whether we know it or not. And today's an opportunity for us to get off the chair, as it were, and to surrender our lives to the judgments of Jesus, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but to do that is hard because we often are so fixed in our ways. And because we're so fixed in our ways and the ways we think we see the world, it leads to anger. It leads to control. It leads to contempt and manipulation. All the things that God wants to free us from. And so we have our prayer team. If you came into church today and you're feeling anger, you're feeling a sense of maybe a loss of control, a sense of disillusionment because things are not unfolding the way that you'd like them to, we want to pray that the mercy of God, the grace of God, would be poured out into our souls, especially in this Lenten season. And so for whatever need that you need prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. In addition to that, maybe some of you are watching online, you came into church today, and you've never said yes to the love of God in Christ Jesus. You've never said yes to saying, I want to follow Christ. I want to surrender my life to Christ. I want to receive forgiveness of sins. I want to enter into a new way of being in the world. And you can come up for prayer or you can simply text the phrase, yes to Jesus, uh, to the number on the screen, 718-424-0122. One of our pastors would love to follow up with you and serve you along those lines. At the end of the service as well, for those of you watching online, there's a sermon discussion time, and so feel free to click the link there and join us for some good conversation. Let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. And with your hands in your hearts in the posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building and out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit, receiving grace and giving grace, receiving compassion and giving compassion, receiving mercy and giving mercy. May the Lord free you 
May the Lord liberate you. May the Lord, may the joy of the Lord be your strength. I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the redeeming name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you all.